Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Ida Vok in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 12th of February. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. All right, Ido, we're back. It's another Friday. How is Berlin? It's another Friday, another day, exactly like every single other day. Berlin is okay. Coronavirus numbers here are actually quite good, but Angela Merkel's government has just extended lockdown for another month at least. And there's a quite a big debate actually over whether haircuts are a matter of human dignity. And so that's actually a surprisingly big question as to at what point the lockdown can be lifted. But I think the fact that the numbers here are really good and certainly a lot better than they are, for instance, in the UK, underscores the really central debate about how the pandemic is going to come to be seen Mm. as we move away from it. Because basically, like, would you rather have have a worse vaccine rollout, but kind of better numbers elsewhere? Or would you rather have done like the UK and have pretty much the highest death rate in the world, but a really quick vaccine rollout and presumably a faster return to normal? And it's a question on which there are good arguments on both sides. And I'm not sure where I fall. And how's DC? Well, the big story here this week was the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. The House impeachment managers made their argument on Tuesday They argued that the trial was indeed constitutional, that you could convict a former official. Only one Republican senator changed his mind. So Ben Sass of Nebraska had previously said that it was not constitutional. And after listening to the arguments, flipped. And one might imagine that the fact that only six Republicans voted to go ahead with the trial suggests that when we get a verdict next week, it will not be for conviction and for barring Trump from future office. But we'll see. Before we get to our guest, what has been the moment this week that you think will go down in history? My moment of the week is that BBC World News was banned from airing in China. The China's National Radio and Television Administration said that its coverage of China had violated its requirements for impartial coverage of China and the kind of coverage of of China's relations with its ethnic minorities and national interests. And then Hong Kong also announced that it would stop relaying BBC World News. So obviously this is a blow to the free access of information inside China, which we already know is a pretty repressive regime, unfortunately. But I think it, it also kind of sets up the wider conflict that is going to 
become more and more of a theme, which we talked about on this podcast before, which is China's worldview clashing with how the rest of the world sees it, particularly over issues like Hong Kong and Uyghurs. But I, I think this will become more and more of a theme, and, and, and these kind of China and, and the rest of the world are kind of going to separate into different universes where there is different information according to geographic locality. And this is, I think, one example of that. We've already seen crackdowns on press freedom and kind of foreign reporters in China before. I think last year or a couple of years ago, some foreign correspondents were kicked out. And I think this is one more example of that. And what's yours? My moment of the week is a continuation of your moment from last week. So last week, you talked about the military in Myanmar slash Burma, if you prefer, overthrowing Aung San Suu Kyi's democratically elected government and saying that the election that, that brought her back into power had been fraudulent, or, or rather that her, her re-election had been fraudulent. This week, what we saw was, well, first of all, here in Washington, D.C., we saw the United States announce sanctions and threaten future measures. But we also saw in the country itself, ethnic minorities join in the protests against the military, which I think is interesting because it is not as though her government had a particularly strong record on minority rights. But nevertheless, ethnic minorities have come out to add their voices to the chorus of those who are saying that this is wrong. And I will just also take this opportunity to say that next week, our guest is from Burma Campaign UK. So we will be discussing this in far greater detail next week. With that, we'll introduce our guest. So as we mentioned last week, a listener wrote in and asked for a little discourse on Holland. We took this to mean that they wanted discourse on the Netherlands generally, not just the two provinces that are Holland. Can't trick me. And, you know, Jeremy, our co-host, is also our boss. He's gone. So Ido and I have gone rogue and have decided to give the people what they want, which was an episode on the Netherlands. So our guest this week is Pepine Bergson. He is a research fellow in the Europe program at Chatham House. Pepine, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. So... I understand that there is an election next month in the Netherlands. Could you speak a bit about, for those who have not been following Dutch politics, sort of who the key players are and what's at stake? Sure. It's an election uh, on March 17th uh, for the national parliament. The key players, as usual in Dutch politics, there's quite a few of them. It's a very proportional system, so there are a lot of parties involved. Uh, But really, the main one is one that people might know, which is the prime minister, Mark Rutte who uh, leads a uh, center-right liberal party. And then the other main uh, sort of person is his uh, largest challenger, which is Geert Wilders, who is the leader of a far-right populist party, the Party for Freedom, who was also his main challenger four years ago. And then there's a whole host of others, of course, because it's coalition politics. You're always going to need all the parties. Okay, before we delve deeper into into the who's who, I had read that recently there were the largest protests in decades in the Netherlands over COVID-related restrictions. How does this context that we're in shape the campaigns? That's true. There was a really large protest which turned into riots uh, for, for several nights. I don't think that's going to have all that much influence on, on the campaign. So what this started was a series of protests against the lockdown measures, very similar to the ones that we've seen in other European countries and really across the world where this these kind of measures have been put in place. And that sort of turned, those escalated, and then they turned into basically two or three nights of rioting, which is something that doesn't happen all that often in the Netherlands. 
but by that time, once we got to the rise, it didn't have all that much to do with with sort of the current situation anymore. It was more sort of young people who took the opportunity to go out on the street and do some looting. So I don't think it's going to influence the election that much, although COVID still is the main theme and it's really pushing sort of everything else off the agenda. There is still quite sort of a broad agreement on the on the lockdown measures and they still enjoy quite strong support. I think that's also sort of in line with what we've seen in a lot of other places. You see protests against the, the lockdown measures, but then almost all the polling shows that the vast majority of people who are actually in favor are often call for even stronger ones. So I don't think it's going to have that much of an influence. What might have an influence is the reason that the government collapsed in January. I believe it was because of a scandal where the government had accused families wrongly of of fraudulently claiming child support payments, and then some of the families had to pay back large amount of amounts of money, and and then were were pushed into into poverty, and then the scandal came out. Now, to some of our listeners, particularly people I think in the UK and possibly in the US, the idea that the government might be punished and might fall for being too harsh on on benefit claimants is slightly fantastical. Can you sort of explain what happened and and how it might affect the upcoming campaign? Yeah, I, I understand that people might find that surprising, but I would also add that this took a long time and a lot of this was already known and it wasn't until sort of a report came out that said that this had been basically a flagrant breach of the rule of law, the way in which the state had acted, that the government finally decided to step down over this. And then on top of that, that didn't really come with any political consequences because election had already been scheduled. So we were already two months before the election. And so far, it seems like it's not going to have any real political consequences. So you're right to say that it was a major scandal. Many people would argue it should have been an even bigger scandal. If you look at the way that the state treated these people unfairly, as you also have pointed out, ruined quite a lot of people's lives. But so far, you're not seeing any result of it in the polls. If anything, the only party that took some sort of responsibility, because that's, I think, one of the issues with the scandal was that almost all of the parties in the center of the political spectrum were implicated in this because it sort of had been going for so long. It spanned several governments, so everybody was implicated, even though arguably they were all under the same prime minister, so they were all under Rutte, but he doesn't seem to be suffering. His poll numbers are sort of staying very high. Uh, his party is still polling at 25%, which in Dutch terms is incredibly high. And it's only one of the other parties of the, the Labour Party who have been suffering a bit. Their leader stepped down because he had been a minister uh, partly responsible for this. So actually, it again seems that it's not really having that much influence on the election. So I guess my follow-up to that is that if COVID restrictions aren't having a big influence on the election and the scandal isn't having a big influence on the election, what are the issues that are? What is impacting the, the discourse around the election? The discourse around the election is has so far been quite quiet in contrast to some other countries where the build-up to elections takes several years. All right, all right. <laughs> in the Netherlands, it tends to be quite short. And the campaign also tends to have quite a bit of influence in terms of people's voting choices. And so you often see quite big shifts in the polls between the polls like two months out and the actual election. So, so far, there's not that much of a campaign yet. We've had a first a first uh, debate, which not even all the party leaders uh, took part in. So there's not that much happening. I would expect sort of the popular side of the political spectrum 
to start pushing things back towards the, the issues that work for them. Mm. So you're talking about migration and integration. That's also what happened four years ago. I think that's become a bit more difficult in these times of uh, pandemic because there are bigger fish to fry. But because mm-hmm. on that point, there's just not that much difference between the parties. There's sort of these small differences in like, what do you allow? Should there be a curfew, which is what the Netherlands now has for the first time since the 1940s, and which is also what triggered the protests and the riots. But otherwise, there's just not that much to discuss because everybody seems to be largely in agreement hmm. that the measures, sort of the broad direction of the measures is right. So I remember that the last time we did this, uh, and by we, I mean the Dutch people, some observed that centrist parties had kind of taken on the right-wing populist position. So the populists didn't win, but the people who did win had had taken on some of their platforms. One, do you think that's fair? And and two, are we seeing it again? Yes, I think that's, that's uh, very fair. And that's something that Rutte in particular has been very good at. And so four years ago, he did that by uh, publishing an open letter in the, in the papers, basically aimed at people with a migration background saying, you know, if you can't act normally, then you should leave. That's a slightly clunky translation from the way he said in Dutch. I mean, in Dutch, sort of that kind of says something, you sh- you're supposed to act normally. So he's, he's really done that to quite a significant degree. And, and I think that's still part of, of their platforms and um, that hasn't really changed. And so you see quite a large stretch on the right with very similar views in that regard. So far, it looks like he's successful in that again. This is one of the first major elections in Europe since the beginning of the pandemic, I think. And, and I guess my question to you is, to what extent is this normal politics? Is it just politics as normal or campaign as normal issues focusing on kind of, I don't know, as you said, integration or perhaps the economy? And to what extent has the campaigning for this election and the, the conduct changed as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, it, I don't think it's sort of quite politics as normal, exactly for what sort of I was talking about earlier in that we're not seeing the same kind of themes as usual come up. And we've got that issue of, you can't really push back against the government at this point, which, like governments basically all across Europe, with a few exceptions, is still enjoying the sort of rally around the flag effect that happened once the pandemic started and everybody sort of felt the need to support the government because of the difficult situation uh, that we're in. So it's become a lot more difficult, I think, to oppose. And we're seeing that here now as well, particularly because even on the populist side, they're not really identifying sort of with the anti-lockdown movement all that much, and particularly not now that we've had sort of the, the protests and the riots. We've seen uh, someone like Wilders actually sort of pull away even more from that side. So it is a different kind of politics. Yeah, it's going to be uh, quite interesting to see how that develops over the coming four weeks and whether particularly the opposition are going to be able to pull the discussion into areas that work for them and whether the governing parties will sort of go along with that. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. So I have two last questions for you and then I'm going to throw it to Ido for the last last hardball. No, I'm just kidding. But the first question, I think that over the course of this pandemic, countries with ostensibly populist leaders have 
fared quite poorly, at least in some ways, you know, be it in the US or the UK or, or Brazil. Do you think that that has hurt the populist parties in, in the Netherlands? It probably hasn't helped them. So if in the polls, the vote share for sort of the far right populists, which are, as with everything in Dutch politics, are very fragmented at the moment. There are several parties of which Wilders is just the biggest and sort of the most consistent. That sort of, sort of that ticked down a bit in the initial phase when you got that rally around the flag. And, but since mm-hmm. then, it's sort of ticked back up and it's sticking at about the same percentage. So that doesn't really seem to change. And then I'm not sure to what degree people's sort of estimation of how well or not a country is done tells us that much about which direction politics will be headed. Um, mm. The Netherlands hasn't done particularly well. It's sort of middling a bit and on on some measures has done particularly poorly. So it's been really, really bad in its testing and tracing system over the summer that took ages to get up and still isn't really working properly. It's until a few days ago, it was the worst or the second to, uh, to last in terms of its vaccinations within the EU. So it's, it's done really poorly in, in many areas, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't seem to affect anything. So it doesn't really seem to affect support for the government, for instance. So my, the last question from me is at, at the very top of this pod, Ido mentioned how poor the EU vaccination rollout has been. Have we seen that lead to a change in sentiment toward the EU in the Netherlands? Has it led to more Euroscepticism? Or is this too something that, that you know, kind of, is water off the, the back of the duck that is uh, Dutch politics. Again, looking at the Prime Minister Rutte is interesting. His his nickname is Teflon Mark because everything just, just sort of slips off him, every scandal. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that also goes for, for the vaccination program, which, as I said, has been particularly bad in the Netherlands, which until a few days ago had hundreds of thousands of vaccines lying in freezers instead of being put into people's arms. The... EU side of it hasn't really featured all that much. It seems that that became a big discussion, particularly in Germany, but outside, not all that much. So the how badly they've performed in terms of actually procuring the vaccines. It, it sort of, again, comes back to, it just all doesn't seem to really matter <laughs> what they do and what happens in terms of political support. I'm, I'm getting the sense that the Dutch are just massively apathetic and just don't really care. <laughs> Dutch listeners, we don't beat it. We understand well, no, that no. there are some things about which you care deeply. So I, for, for the last question, I'd just like to broaden it out slightly. So the Netherlands has this rather fantastic electoral system where there are 150 seats. And if you get one 150th of the vote, you get one seat. How do you think this affects politics? And like, I, I think traditionally, we think of PR systems, especially with no electoral threshold as being very kind of unstable and leading to very narrow governments that are in thrall to to extremists and, and so on. Do you think that's fair in, in the way it functions in the Netherlands? Or on the contrary, does it lead to, you know, wide plurality of views and, and actually what appears to be a fairly stable government? Yeah, well, I think this is where I'm going to be nice about the Netherlands. I actually think it, it works very well, particularly in a country like the Netherlands, which has a sort of consensus culture which is something that you do need because you're going to have to work together with with the opposition or with parties that are quite far removed from you on a very regular basis. You have to also work together with sort of the more extreme side. So Margaret's first government was a minority government, which is doesn't happen really in the Netherlands usually, but that was supported by Geert Wilders. That didn't work out very well for him. So 
he's not keen to to do that again. But that is something that will happen under a system where, as you say, you need 0.6% of the vote to get into parliament. On the other hand, it also allows for much more sort of regular democratic renewal. So it becomes a lot easier for new parties representing new constituencies or a sort of specific interests to get into parliament. And so one, one of the examples is there's an animal rights party in the Netherlands, which has been in parliament for, I think, over a decade now and is now polling at several seats. And so that does sort of add specific issues into the into the political debate, for instance. But you do need sort of the wider political culture that enables that. So you do need that consensus culture, and that's baked into everything in the Netherlands and into sort of how the entire country functions. Everything is about sort of different interest groups coming together and talking out their differences, which means that everything, particularly around policymaking, can be very slow. And the same goes around forming government. So it took you know hundreds of days of negotiations behind closed doors to form the current government, even though it's sort of four parties that are relatively close to each other on the political spectrum. So you do risk sort of ending up with in, in something like a Belgium scenario where you spend hundreds of days negotiating. You know, they took 500 days at, at one point. But the benefits that you get from that in terms of you get more representation or sort of a better reflection of society, I think, re- represented in parliament is also worth something. And that's a great note to move on to the next segment of our podcast, which our colleagues at the New Statesman like to call. You ask us. So our question deals with a figure who has been brought up several times over the conversation so far. It comes from an anonymous listener, and it is, has Gert Wilders reached a limit on his support? So Pepine, if you can tell us a bit about who Mr. Wilders is and whether or not he's reached a limit on his support. So Geert Wilders is, as I said, the leader of the uh, Party for Freedom, and he's a former member of the uh, Party of the Prime Minister, the VVD, which he left in 2006 and then formed his own party. And his party is basically the largest far-right populist party in the Netherlands. He's been in parliament with his own party since 2006. As I said, he's supported outside of the government, but he's been sort of the main supporter of a minority government. And it seemed, at least from where, where I was sitting four years ago, that his sort of political success was coming to an end. So he has a political program based really mainly around an anti-Islam mesi- message. Mm-hmm. His party program four years ago was literally one page, which mainly talked about sort of banning mosques and the Quran and those kind of measures, and sort of none of, none of which were really compatible with the constitution. And he also got some new competition four years ago. That competitor then sort of fell apart into infighting in the last couple of months, actually. And it seems like Wilders, by staying quiet over that period, and uh, also during the COVID period, so he's been sort of relatively quiet also in his, in his opposition, has sort of crept back up and is now the main challenger again. Of course, that doesn't mean that he would get into government should his party win the larger share of the vote. But... Sort of within the the framing of the election, uh, that is the role that he plays. Having said that, it does seem like support for these kind of parties has something of an upper limit of close to twenty percent. So that is, if you sort of add all these kind of far right populist parties together, that is kind of where they end up, um, sort of on the best of days in the polls. So I think that is where his limit is, and that's also a limit outside of government because nobody will go into government with him. So I have a follow-up, which is, is it that 
these ideas, anti-immigration, anti-Muslim, that those ideas will only capture 20%? Or is it that if you brand yourself as an explicitly far-right party, you'll only get that, but these same ideas have greater support if you can kind of move them into the mainstream? I guess he has done that by pushing a lot of the center-right or pulling a lot of the center-right in his direction. He has effectively mainstreamed a lot of these ideas. So he has already done that. So it's less that his platform is limited in support and more that he himself has has kind of capped out. It sounds, listening to you, that his influence is greater than his individual political career. Yes, that, 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 I think that's the, sort of the best summary. By doing exactly that, by bringing everybody closer to, to him, his influence has far sort of gone beyond the, you know, the 15% of the vote that he gets at max. And on that slightly depressing note, thanks to everyone who sent in your questions. Keep them coming in to us at youaskus.co.uk. As ever, for our final segment, we are going to take a look ahead. Papine, what in global affairs will you be watching closely next week? I'll be looking at Mario Draghi, the former president of the ECB, presenting his political platform in the Italian parliament next week. So he found support for his government in parliament this week. And he'll uh, set out his plans sometime next week. Mario Draghi is like the new Polish presidential election for this podcast. And that it's the new thing that we somehow managed to mention every week. That's a great one to watch. Ido, what will you be looking at? There's a summit in the Chadian capital of N'Djamena on Monday, which will discuss the future of the French-led military presence in Mali. So Operation Barken. So it's going to be five Sahel countries, including Niger, Burkina Faso, and Mali, so all former French French colonies. They're known as the, the Sahel G5. So there's going to be a summit with Macron to discuss the, the future of the Malian operation, which has been going since 2014, and there's been kind of increasing criticism at home, in, so in France, of France's presence in Mali because there's a steady, steady drip, drip, drip of French casualties, unfortunately. And so it's expected that there will be some kind of ramping down of the troop presence in the Sahel. So I'll be, I'll be watching that closely because I think it tells us quite a lot about France's role in the world, how it perceives itself and kind of also how it's getting overstretched. And what will you be watching? Well, I feel that I must bring us back, sadly, to, to the United States. I will be on the lookout for how the Senate votes on Donald Trump's impeachment trial. And not only how they vote, because I think, again, barring some... It's a wonderful life-esque change of heart on the part of Republican senators. Um, it, he, we will not be convicted. But I think the way in which various Republican senators spin their vote or how they justify it or whether they feel the need to, that will tell us something about how they're going to try to position themselves in the next two, four years. So we will be covering that for the New Statesman and, and discussing it <laughs> often on this podcast in the weeks ahead. With that, all that remains is to say a huge thank you to Pepin Bergson for joining us. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. And as a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review and follow all of our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.